Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. I'm here, one of my writers in this case, Emma. Thank you, Emma. Solving has written me a script. Solving crimes for dummies. Catching Robert Nap- Napper. I was going to say Napier. Don't know why. Napper. Um, the format of the show is I've never read this before. We're going to explore it together. It's going to be fun, except for all the murder. Uh, assuming there's murder. I don't know. Solving crimes for dummies. Maybe this guy's too stupid to even commit murder. Not that you have to be smart to commit murder. What am I talking about? Yo, if you like true crime, if you like it in a more casual format, you'll love this show. Maybe. Not a guarantee. But what is a guarantee is that... That's not even a guarantee. If you subscribe, you might not even see it on YouTube or in your podcast app. But why not? Do it anyway and let's get into it. As long-time fans of this channel will know, there's nothing that pisses off Simon more than shoddy police work. Ah, that's not true. The thing that pisses me off more is the fact that we need police work altogether. Because there's, like, loads of horrible criminals out there. And out there murdering and kidnapping people and raping and murdering. And oh my god. <laughs> You've been there. You've been, you're just described as a long-time fan of this channel. Holy shit. That upsets me more than shoddy police work. But shoddy police work is a second. Maybe. Unfortunately for you, Simon, anyone who's ever seen a documentary or listened to a podcast on Robert Napper uh, would be able to tell you that the Metropolitan Police had royally f***ed up their investigations into both the Green Chain Rapist and the murder of Rachel Nickby, completely ruining the life of an innocent man and resulting in more than one police officer losing their jobs. Yeah, oh, we're gonna get into this. Like, railroading is like something... I've, I just find fascinating. It's like, I, I love, like, human psychology fascinates me no end. Like, the stupid that we as humans, like, like, and our broken brains getting up to shit. And it's like, the police, it's well, like, understood. If they find a suspect and they're like, he's our man, and they'll just be like, mm, he's our man, find the evidence for it. And then some evidence will come forward and be like, he's not the guy. They'll be like, ignore that. There's other evidence. There must be, even though this is DNA. <laughs> or like, you know, something super convincing comes along because the police just get railroaded on one suspect. And I mean, it's not, I mean, it is their fault, but it's not their fault. It's like human psychology. We're all broken. When I pitched this script to you, I specifically, oh my god, this must have been so long ago, I, I have no memory of this. I specifically mentioned how the Metropolitan Police's incompetence had tragic consequences, but it was while I was hunting for more details that I came across a book called Napper Through a Glass Darkly that was published in 2019. It's a first-hand account that has been written by Alan Jackman, one of the detective inspectors who was a part of the investigative team that had captured Robert Napper, and it turned this script on its head changing a case of disgraceful police incompetence into a story about a team of five investigators who did what the rest of the Metropolitan Police had been unable to do, link three unrelated cases together by focusing on doing their jobs, finally explaining how a serial rapist and killer had managed to evade capture for almost four years. Ooh, I like that. I like- What I do, like- <laughs> On this show, it's like, I feel like I do equal amounts being like, oh my god, police, come on, get your shit together. And equal amounts, holy shit, this guy's the legend. He's the legend. That, he is the Batman of the police. He's the legend we all need, and he just comes in, I should say he or she. It does tend to be, are there like more male detectives? I feel like there must be, because it's always like, I'm using he, and I'm like, oh, Simon, maybe it could be a woman. But I'm thinking back, and it's like, it's almost always some dude. I don't know, I... I long term like and these are always in the past anyway i don't know whatever let's carry on i was gonna say it's not important but it is <laughs> i'd get in trouble if i said it wasn't important <laughs> be a slip of the tongue don't know why i said that it's just inviting what am i doing <laughs> what am i doing with my life the elusive robert napper 
Let's start with an introduction to today's winner of the worst person to ever walk the Earth Award. No, we don't need that. Pedro Lopez has already taken it. We, <laughs> Pedro Lopez. Oh. I actually made a video on one of my other channels about and Pedro Lopez came up and I was like, oh, for th- why? Why do I have to be reminded of Pedro Lopez? He murdered like 200 children, for those of you who haven't seen our episode on that. And it, I, I still think about that. It's been, what, six months? And I'm still like, fucking Pedro Lopez. What a piece of shit. And then this other video posed the really compelling idea. I don't remember if he raised it in, in, in the Casual Criminals video about this. But the, the reason he's never been found is because he was very quickly murdered. Like, he was released from prison because that's a thing in Colombia, I want to say, where he was in prison for ho- all his horrible crimes. Where there's some limits on how long someone could be in prison. So he gets out of prison and then he disappears. And I was like, oh, no, he's out there murdering still. And then this other video was like, no, no, no. He was just murdered by someone really quickly and no one gave a shit. The police were like, oh, no. Oh, no. He's been killed. What a shame. Let's not do any investigating whatsoever. <laughs> Let's just cover this shit up. And no one minded. No, hopefully he was tortured to death. Roger Clive Napper was born on... Dude, Roger Clive Napper, I'm sure you're a bad dude, but you've got some catching up to do if you want to beat Pedro Lopez for being the worst person to ever walk the earth. Because we already know it's Pedro Lopez, Emma. Uh, he was born on the 25th of February, 1966, in Erith, southeast London. And later, he would be the eldest of four children. His father, Brian Napper, was a driving instructor and his mother, Pauline, stayed home to look after the kids. The Napper family lived a life filled with rainbows and butterflies and unicorns will often branch through the back garden while fairies flitted past their bedroom windows. Why do I get the feeling this is sarcasm and like, Robert Napper was horribly abused? Just kidding, this is an episode of The Casual Criminalist, which means that Brian Napper was an abusive asshole who couldn't even tell you when his children's birthdays were. I'm just trying to remember if I know mine. Yes and yes, yes. I'm not going to say them out loud because there's a lot of people. There's, there's people who are weird on the internet. Like, if I say that, I will absolutely get emails on those dates saying like hey simon wish your kids happy birthday and i'm like bro that's not it's just that just comes across as weird my dude stop <laughs> that's why i'm not saying them out loud but i did remember them in my head because i'm a big brain but at least pauline had the strength to divorce him when robert was 10 uh removing herself and her kids from that situation but brian napper kept on turning up at their new home in plumstead another area in southeast london and continued to harass pauline and the kids until he finally emigrated to australia excellent <laughs> He's following that old tradition of sending bad people to Australia. <laughs> He'll fit right in. Just kidding, Australia. I love you. Australia's great. I'd love to go to Australia. I've never been. It's just really far. It's really far. It's like a 24-hour flight or something crazy. And you have to lay over, which is a pain in the ass. As a result, the children would receive psychiatric treatment at the Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital to help them cope with the emotional abuse that they'd suffered. It was during these visits to a psychiatrist that Robert Napper would be diagnosed with Asperger's Syndrome, which these days has been reclassified as a form of high-functioning autism, meaning that he found it difficult to relate to others, had trouble understanding social cues, and he had obsessive tendencies. He would continue to receive treatment until he turned 16, and as a teenager, he'd also be diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. This is a bad, this is not, these are not these are major conditions later robert napper would say that he had a mostly happy childhood but according to bill pete an old classmate of robert napper he was quiet 
and shy, who didn't fit in with any of the social groups in his class. He was often bullied at school, resulting in him spending a lot of time on his own. Allegedly, he started acting out when his mother was in hospital for a kidney complaint, and he would later skip school and get in trouble for shoplifting. According to Robert, though, the turning point in his life happened when he was 12. He went camping with family friends, and during this trip, young Robert would be sexually assaulted by a friend of Pauline's. When Robert told his mother about the assault, she reported the friend to the police, and he was subsequently convicted of sexual assault, but something in Robert broke that day, and a monster was born. Pauline would later explain, after that disastrous camping trip, Robert was a different person. He would spend all of his time in his bedroom, and when he did leave his room, he'd bully his younger siblings and often got into trouble for spying on his younger sister when she was taking a bath or getting dressed. <laughs> this is like this stuff. It's like, keep it on him. Keep it close on him. Put him on a list. Just like, you know, send him to the... Well, he was already at the psychiatrist, wasn't he? Oh, God. He left school when he was 16 and would go on to take several jobs where he never lasted very long. For the next 12 years, he worked as a kitchen assistant, a cable operator, an under-chef, and a machine operator slash packer. Oh, my God. I'm so... Like, why is a cable operator? What does that even mean? He operates cables? What's an under-chef? <laughs> why don't I know any of these jobs? I know what a packer is. That's someone who packs boxes. But his employers all explained that he had trouble fitting in. He was a good worker, but he was often late. He had a habit of taking days off without notifying anyone regarding where he was going to be or when he would be back. Yeah, sounds like a great worker. Where's he? Just did show up today. Brilliant. <laughs> his colleagues described him as being weird and explained that he would often talk and argue with himself and could be seen shouting at the sky. He wouldn't speak to any of the female staff, and in turn, they felt uncomfortable and afraid around him, referring to him as the creep. Uh-oh. <laughs> this dude is like oh man i'm sure like most people like this they don't turn out to be like oh, considering this guy's the running for worst person ever to exist i'm assuming he's gonna get some pretty horrific murders like yeah we're all, like reading this in retrospect you're like he's gonna turn out he's gonna turn out he's gonna be a murderer looking all the signs are there but there's plenty of people who are like creepy and weird who don't turn out to be horrific murderers they just continue being creepy and weird easier better just continue being a weirdo, my dude. There's no need to murder. But it was his fascination with knives and other weapons that no one knew about. He had frequent hunting supply stores and order hunting knives through the mail, keeping his favorite knives in a red toolbox. He'd often wander around southeast London with a red toolbox hidden away in a black Jaguar sports bag as he made his way to and from job sites using public transport to get around the city. It was during these trips that Robert Napper made note of his future targets. He would stalk them for days or weeks before he attacked, drawing up maps that detailed the air around their homes, including the best hiding spots from where he could watch them. He also kept track of them by marking their addresses in an A to Z guide to London that he'd bought, which of course means that he was doing a brilliant job of documenting his crimes, but we'll get to that later. Yet yeah, don't mark the names of your victims in an A to Z guide to London. That's just that's basic sh my dude come on because by the time the metropolitan police finally caught up to him robert napper had already stalked over 80 women had sexually assaulted four of them killed three more and had left little to no evidence behind what except for marking in his a to z <laughs> making it difficult for the police to pin him down and finally bring him to justice the green chain rapist there's a lot to see and do around central London, but the outer edges of the city also have lots to offer tourists and locals who have some time on their hands. Yeah, I lived in London for a year when I was a student. 
and there's so much to do it's such a big city and i never found you know when you go somewhere you're like oh my god the social you never do anything so i made myself go and do something every sunday i'd go and do something like go to a museum or an art gallery something new every weekend and it was great and i went to all these places like adam binza like the science museum since i was a kid and i went back and i was like holy shit, this is great and i'd spend like all of my sunday just doing all this random shit, and it was great often hung over uh, there are seven walking routes around london all of them specifically designed so that you can tour london sites simply by following these marked routes the green chain walk is located in southeast london and consists of 11 different sections stretching from the thames path to the nunhead cemetery there are several parks and forested commons protected areas for our international viewers along the route with sections of the route passing through residential areas where they link up with london's transportation system making it easy to move around london using these routes this also means that there are a lot of dark shadowed corners and overgrown paths along the route and the properties that were situated on the borders of these parks became prime targets for Robert. At 7 a.m. on the 10th of August 1989, a young mother known as Julia opened her kitchen door to let the cat out. The backyard of her apartment on Purrett Road looked out onto an area known locally as Plumstead Common, even though technically it was on the border of the Winds and Plumstead Commons, and the edges were lined with lush trees and healthy undergrowth. Julia's two children were due to come downstairs, so she made breakfast for them, and once they were seated around the breakfast table, she went upstairs to take a quick shower and get ready for the day. At 8.25, Robert stepped out of his hiding spot between the silver birch trees and climbed over the low fence that separated the backyard from the common. He calmly walked into the kitchen, walking past the five and eight-year-old who were still busy with their breakfast and heading upstairs to where Julia was now getting dressed. <laughs> He's just walked into the house. These kids are five and eight. Wait. At what point would you be like, Hey, who are you, old man? And get the fuck out of my house. Right? Eight? I feel like my kid's like three. And she'd be like, hello, who are you? But by eight? I'd be like, okay, get out, you weirdo. Mom, there's a man in the kitchen. God damn, that'd be spooky. Can you imagine just having a shower and your kid's just shouting, Mom, there's a, oh, Dad, there's a man in the kitchen. I'd be like, what the fuck's going on? How did he get in my house? Where's my gun? I'm just kidding, I don't have a gun. I don't have any weapons. Just get a fat knife. <laughs> I know, I just, I mean, I'm kind of kidding because I'm like, ah, uh, you know, even though I do this true crime show, I'm like, ah, uh, you know, statistically this won't happen to me, hopefully. Oh, God. Yes, I know when your birthday is, kid. Oh, no. <laughs> Julia heard a noise and froze when she saw Robert standing in her bedroom door. He had tied a beige cloth around the bottom half of his face, and when Julia noticed him, he took a standing knife from his pocket and ordered her to lie down on the bed or else it hurt the children. Julia did as he asked, and Robert stepped up to her and pulled her t-shirt up and over her head. He tied it with an electrical flex cord, politely asking her what her name was as he stripped her down further, keeping the tip of the knife pressed to her throat. He raped her while the children were downstairs enjoying their breakfast, and once he was done, he cut her loose and ordered her to stand in the corner of the bedroom to count to twenty. Before he left, though, he turned to Julia and said, Do you want a piece of advice? Don't leave your back door open. Do you want a piece of advice? Don't be a rapist! You. Julia watched from the upstairs window as he left the house through the kitchen door, climbed back over the fence, and disappeared into the trees that lined Wynn Common. Still shaking, she went downstairs to ensure that her children were unharmed and found them in front of the television, happily watching cartoons before calling the police. The police officers who came to interview Julia took DNA samples from her, and she was, when was this happening? 1989, I want to say? 1989. So, very early days of DNA. And she described her assailant as being approximately five foot ten. He was a medium build and had short, mousy hair. He looked young, 
and she judged him to be around 19. The police officers, oh no, he was older than that, wasn't he? Like 30 something. I called him an old man, but I, then I realized he was actually like, because he was born in 66, so 89, so he's 33. That's a big six, seven, eight. No. Oh my God, I'm so stupid. That's 2023. 20, <laughs> the police officers assured her that they would let her know the moment they found out more about who had attacked her. The DNA samples were tested, but they only managed to get a partial profile. Unfortunately, the DNA profile didn't match anyone on the system, and when the police were unable to identify a likely suspect within a few weeks, the case was closed and their resources were allocated to more pressing cases. It's a sad reality when it comes to the nature of their work, and I can't exactly fault the police on this one since they had no other leads to follow yet yeah i mean this is the thing if there's no evidence and no dna and it's not a match what are you supposed to do next in the like for the police and that sucks because this is like a proper full-on crime it's not like oh no it's a theft and we gave up it's like no there's just literally no other evidence we we don't have enough it's crazy kind of i mean it's not it's not crazy it's like that is police work that is how it is but um yeah f this guy robert napper would continue to stalk the houses along green chain walk but in october 1989 he confessed his crime to his mother telling her how he'd raped a woman on plumstead common what are you doing don't confess your crimes don't confess your crimes to anyone like even people you've got confidentiality with lawyer oh maybe you have to what, what's the deal do you confess your crimes to your lawyer because they can't defend you if you're guilty can they i mean obviously come on but and like just don't even like you're seeing a psychiatrist or whatever you're seeing um, your priest, you're seeing your doctor or whatever. Don't confess your crimes. Obviously, what are you doing? Don't confess your crimes to your mother. You crazy? Pauline was shocked and she ended up kicking Robert out of the house before disowning him entirely. For this reason, you raped someone, dude. Mum's not going to be like, oh, it's okay, son. Don't worry about that. Everything's fine. You know, we all get one pass. <laughs> no, she's going to be like, don't be a raper. Raper. Don't be a rapist. She then went to the Plumstead police station and told the desk clerk on duty that she had to report a crime. She didn't know any of the particulars, only that the woman had been attacked on Plumstead Common earlier that year and that her son had been the one to rape her. Good for you. I mean, there's like, I don't know what you'd do in that situation, right? But like, good for her going to the police and being like, yeah, you raped someone. Because it could just be like, I don't know, kick him out. I, I could have equally seen this going, she kicked him out and shut the f up. But it's cool that she went to the police. And this is where the confusion came in. I mentioned earlier how the area where Julia lived was known as Plumstead Common, but technically her house was located on the border of Wynn's Common. Secondly, she'd been raped inside her home, not on the commons as Pauline had incorrectly reported. So the officers who looked into the revolt couldn't find any unsolved sexual assaults that matched the information provided by Pauline, but worse still, they didn't go and question Robert either. Then I mean to continue stalking the single women living around Plumstead Common. Hey, police, how about when someone's mother goes and say, oh, yeah, I've got some bad news. This is really hard for me to say, but my son's a rapist. How about you go and talk to the son? Because it's not like some, even if it's some random person reporting a rape, go and talk to the person who they're accusing because it's rape. Don't just be like, well, I don't know, you're his mother. You could just, what reason would she have to lie about this? She's his mother. <laughs> this is insane. Come on, police, do your job. In February 1992, more than two years after his first attack, a young, attractive blonde woman uh, was busy watching TV one night when one of her living room windows exploded. Reflexively, she looked outwards the shattered window and saw a man lurking in the trees that bordered her yard. Angry, she called out to him in order to confront him, but he disappeared between the trees, and the woman searched her living room to see if she could find whatever rock or brick he'd used to break the window, unable to think of a reason why I'd done it. She didn't find a brick, but she did find a bullet hole in the wall, quite close to where she'd been sitting, and a feeling of dread washed over her. Yeah, no shit. She, this guy tried to shoot her. 
That's mental. She called the police and the bullet was retrieved, but with no other evidence to go on, the case was labeled an act of criminal damage and was closed. Police, how about you label that attempted murder? You closed the case? Isn't this just a cold case? Just be like, well, it's not closed because we didn't find out or tried to shoot the woman. Police, what's going on? On the evening of the 10th of March, 1992, a robber would attempt to rape a 17-year-old after he'd followed her down a darkened alleyway. He'd pushed her up against a wall and had removed some of her clothes, been unable to get it up, and he ran away as soon as he finished. She'd describe him as being white male, approximately 20 years old and 5 foot 8. He had dark brown hair, brown eyes, clean complexion without any spots. He had a southeast London accent and was wearing a black bomber jacket and blue jeans. He'd left enough semen behind for the police to draw up a DNA profile for him, and it matched the DNA profile of the earlier sexual assault case, but still, the police didn't have a suspect. At around 8pm on the 18th of March, she'd attempted to rape another 17-year-old who tried to get away from her stalker by cutting through the Vista Common and leaving the light and path that she had been on. He appeared on the shadowed pathway in front of her, wearing a balaclava and holding a knife, and forced her onto her back. He fumbled around for a few minutes before he finished, and once again he disappeared between the trees. She described her attacker as being young white male, about 19, collar-length mousy hair, DNA was taken from her, and once again it matched the unnamed assailants that had already attacked two other women. What are you doing leaving your DNA all over the place? This is, like, it's 1980s, 1989. You know DNA's a thing. What's up? You're a terrible criminal. Almost as bad as the police that seem unable to, you know, why didn't they go and talk to this guy? All of this, like, okay, so there's no, there's not enough evidence, there's not enough evidence, fine, fine, fine. They are collecting the evidence, they're tying it all together, brilliant, they're going somewhere. But why didn't they go and talk to the potential rapist whose mother reported him? That seems like such a massive oversight. On the 24th of May at 2pm, a 22-year-old mother was out for a daily walk and a 2-year-old daughter was asleep in her stroller. She'd seen a man crossing the path ahead of her before he disappeared into the trees, but she didn't think much of it until he appeared behind her and placed a cord around her neck. Instinctively, she let go of the stroller and grabbed the cord, stepping back into her assailant's chest. He dragged her into the trees, and when she began to fight back, he hit her multiple times in the face until she was dazed. He raped her and left her sprawled out on the ground and got away without anyone noticing him. Beaten and bloody, she managed to walk to her mother-in-law's house before she collapsed. The police were called and she described her attacker as being a young white male with a slim build, short brown hair and a spotty complexion. During her first statement, she had described him as being really tall, about the same length as the officer who'd interviewed her. He was six foot three. Later, she changed her description of the attacker, adding that he was five foot seven instead and that he was wearing a shirt and blue shorts. That's a big difference in height. Why Why would you change that later? That just, I mean, whenever something changes like that, I'm not saying she's like lying or anything. Don't don't get me wrong. But it's like the memory is like terrible. And it should, I feel like the first one is going to be the most accurate. And then the second one is going to be like, oh, you thought about things with the person this. And it's like, that's not good for memories. It's not like, oh, you thought it through. It's no, you just like misremembered. Because we have stupid human brains. Once again, DNA was recovered for her and it matched the unnamed assailant who'd already attacked three other women in or around Plumstead Common. The investigative team on the case not only had DNA on file for the attacker, but all four of the victims had provided them with a similar description. They issued a photo fed, aka a police sketch, to local newspapers, who all ran the image together with the warning that the assailant was known as the Green Chain Rapist and was active in the Plumstead area and was known to carry a knife. Calls flooded the Eltham police station where the investigative team was based and the list of suspects grew longer and longer every day yeah because he's a average height white male with brown hair slim this 
is a lot of people. One of the detectives suggested that they call in the help of a psychological profiler to help them narrow down the list, and the investigative team contacted a clinical psychologist named Paul Britton, who agreed to help out. He was well known in police circles as being instrumental in solving some high-profile cases, including the investigation into the horror house of Fred and Rose West. Once he was briefed on the case and had read the relevant files, he came up with the following profile for the Green Chain Rapist. The man they were looking for was between 18 and 25 years old, but wasn't likely to be older than 28. He would be of low to average intelligence, and if he is employed, he would have a menial job that doesn't demand too much from him intellectually. If he does have female colleagues, he would likely shun them and wouldn't approach them unless they confronted him first. That's so far pretty bang on, mate. And when it comes to his crimes, he is a risk-taker and isn't concerned with being captured. He expresses considerable rage and anger, derives pleasure from the fear he produces in his victims, and based on his last attack, he could become more aggressive based on the reactions of his victim, meaning that he would kill them if they fought back. It's more than likely that the police would have already encountered him before and that he already had a record with them. He's local and probably grew up in the area. He'll bring himself to the attention of the police in three ways. One, by information provided by the public. Two, by being caught during an offense. Or three, by elimination process based upon an examination of existing police records. But despite the efforts of Paul Britton and the police officers on the investigative team, none of the leads they received panned out. And by August 92, the lead detective on the case was put under pressure to close the case down. What? Just leave it as a cold case. Just why close it? Just I'm, maybe I'm just like this is too much like information from the movies. But a closed case means like we don't look into it anymore. A cold case means like it's just kind of sitting there, and if we get some more evidence, we'll like carry on with it, right? You can stop making so much effort with it, but do you really need to close it? Is that like a stats thing? Because that would be just that would be disappointing. They hadn't had another attack since May, and the team members were needed on other cases, so the decision was made to narrow their suspect list down to white males between the ages of 19 and 30 who were between 5'7 and 5'9. And this is where the first major slip-up of the case occurred, because two separate people would call up the Eltham police station to let them know that they thought Robert Napper might be the green chain rapist. Yeah, but they've probably got a lot of calls because it's super generic. I'm sure there were a lot of calls that didn't say it was him and said it was a bunch of other people. Right? One of his colleagues told Metropolitan Police that Robert was a paranoid schizophrenic and a good fit for the photo fit. One of his neighbors also called in and said that he'd seen the photo fit in the local newspaper and could have sworn that it was Bob Napper. He used to see Robert leave his apartment alone late at night, and one of their older neighbors mentioned that Robert always had his bags packed, something that they found to be odd. He's ready to move. <laughs> They're like, Robert, we're coming for you. He's like, go, 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 go. So it's like, go bags. I love spy movies. So, on the 28th of August 1992, two police officers showed up at Robert Napper's door and were greeted by a tall, cooperative, and quiet man who was taller than 5'7". When they asked Robert how tall he was, he told them that he was 6'1". They made note of his height but didn't mention that Robert walked with a noticeable stoop, making him appear shorter than he was. The two police officers notified Robert that they needed him to come down to the station and provide a blood sample since he was a person of interest in one of their cases. Okay, we're what? Nearly half a third of the way through today's video, and it's like, okay, cool. They go and see him, they take his blood, they match it up to the DNA on the semen, boom, prison, easy, done. So what goes wrong? They even provide him with an appointment letter, noting that he should report to Eltham Police Station on the 2nd of September 1992 at 7pm. <laughs> it's like, we made an appointment for you. I mean, like, do I legally have to go? I'm just like, yeah, 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 sure, I'll see you there. Next call you make to a lawyer. 
Now, it's important today that according to D.I. Jackman, suspects aren't legally obliged to provide the police with blood samples and that, in fact, Robert Napper was fully within his rights to refuse. Well, there we go. But, I mean, if they suspect him enough, they can get that blood. They'll be like, I'm sorry that you're giving it. Or they could, like, uh, just be like, hey, mate, can we have a look at your hairbrush? Just love what you're doing with your hair. Can I just have a quick look at that? See what type of hairbrush you're using? Yoink. Take some of the DNA from there. Lock it down. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that he didn't show up for his appointment on the 2nd of September shocking because he does that and it's like game over it's game surely like if this dude's got these bags packed and ready to go this is the time you go this is the time when you off to belize and never come home because the police showed up at your door asking for a dna sample and you know you're a violent rapist so what what other option i mean that's it that's it they know it's you they know it's you. On the 4th of September 1992, the police delivered him with yet another appointment letter, this time for the 8th of September. Again, he did a police, what are you up to? Just, just like, hi, uh, got an appointment for you. You know, come by when you're It's like a bloody dentist, except it's blood for a, for a rape case. Again, he didn't show, and this time a detective sergeant was assigned to review his profile. Okay, so I guess he's a suspect, right? And they're just expecting him. He shows up, he gives his sample, and they rule him out. So they're not, like, super pressuring him. They're just like, yo, 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 you're, like, vaguely, possibly connected with this case. We just want to rule you out. Show up for your appointments. And they could be thinking, ah, oh, I don't know, maybe he was, like, returning some videotapes or something like that. Like, that's the reason he didn't show up. But, yeah. Now they're going to be like, bro, <laughs> why are you not showing up, huh? 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 Oh, you're in Belize. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dude, it's, it's time to go. <laughs> the detective noted that due to his heart, Robert Napper fell outside of the set height parameters, and because they were under pressure to close the case by month's end, he was dismissed as a suspect, and his record with the Eltham police was closed. Years later, the Independent Police Complaints Commission would find that this decision had inevitably led to the deaths of Samantha and Jasmine Bisset. The Murder of Rachel Nichol Earlier that year, on the 15th of July 1992, barely two months after it attacked a young mother on Plumstead Common, Robert Napper escalated from stalking and sexually assaulting women when he murdered Rachel Nichol. She was a 23-year-old part-time model who lived near Wimbledon Common in southwest London with her partner Andrea Hanscombe and their almost three-year-old son Alex, as well as their Labrador mix Molly. At around 10.25 that sunny July morning, Rachel was taking Alex and Molly for a walk near the windmill, following the same route through Wimbledon Common that she always took. Rachel had just sent Molly away to run off her excess energy when a man stepped up behind her, pressed a blade to her throat, and ordered her to leave the paved walk, walkway and head into the trees. What's going on in the middle of the day? What the f***? It's 10.25 in the morning in Wimbledon. Isn't it busy? If she didn't comply, he said, emphasizing his words with the press of the blade, it hurt her son. Rachel stared into Alex's hazel eyes and agreed, leading her son deeper into the trees that lined the walk, all the while feeling the blade pressed into her neck. Once they were hidden in the trees, the man started pulling at her clothes, ordering her to take them off. Realizing that something was wrong, Alex started crying, and Rachel tried to soothe him, but the boy's cries angered Robert, and he grabbed the red toolbox and hit Alex against the head with it, knocking the boy out. Oh my god, he's three. My kid's three. That's, that's not cool. That's not okay. Angered, Rachel started attacking Robert, trying to keep him away from her son. Good for you. Unlike the other victims so far, Rachel was making a lot of noise, so Robert fought to overpower her and wound up stabbing her over 49 times. It's a bit different, isn't it? Is that what you're doing? No, I was, I, was, I was trying to overpower her. And then the knife slipped into her by accident 49 times? What are you up to, you psycho? 
killing her. He finished raping her before fleeing the scene, leaving an unconscious Alex spread out on the ground a few feet away from his mother's corpse. F*** you. Little Alex would wake up alone and go to sit next to his mother, trying to bandage her injuries with fallen tissues and leaves. I did not need to picture that in my mind, to be honest. And that is where Michael Murray and his dog found him, and they noticed a pair of bare legs sticking out from under the bushes. Quote, When I got up to where she lay, her eyes had no life in them at all. My first thought was for the child. I think he was in shock. He said, Get up, mummy. He was trying to pull her up. But she was, of course, dead by then. Within an hour of her death, Metropolitan Police had barricaded all of the entrances leading into Wimbledon Common, hoping to either trap the killer or find any witnesses to his crime. But by then, Robert Napper had already left the area and was on a train heading back to southeast London. Would you remember that if you're three? I'm just thinking about this kid and how horrible this is. I I don't think they would remember that, right? Your brain at that point, you're not really good at forming memories and you'd be able to, to block that out. Wow. There were over 500 people on Wimbledon Common that day, and one of them told the police that around 10.40 that morning, she'd seen a man washing his hands in a stream near the murder site. When she neared him, he got up and walked towards the cemetery that bordered the common. She described him as being a white man between the ages of 20 and 30 years old, six foot tall with short collar-length hair. He was wearing a cream or white top and loose blue jeans and was carrying a black bag. Another woman known as Mrs. H had been walking in the park with her three kids. She was walking near the windmill car park when she saw a white man headed towards her. He was wearing dark trousers, a white button-up top, had short dark hair and was carrying a dark-colored sports bag. She estimated him to be in his late 20s, early 30s, 5 foot 10, and noted that he walked with a stooping gait. As he approached her, she greeted him, noting his babyish sort of face. He didn't reply, averting his face instead, and he kept on walking. She and her children were sitting at the curling pond when she saw him return. She saw him following a young blonde woman, but he came back at around 10.20 before disappearing into the trees near the windmill. She was able to provide the police with a detailed description that was used for the photo fit. Dude, you just, this, this guy's an idiot. He's just leaving. I see why this is like for dummies or whatever. It's like, bro, could you leave more evidence? Could you leave more witnesses? You're a criminal and I hope you get caught. A police dog had traced a path from the scene of the murder to a drainage ditch and then a boundary wall next to Putney Vale Cemetery. Two witnesses had heard someone running through the bushes in the cemetery around the time of Rachel's murder, but they didn't see whoever it was. The Metropolitan Police managed to find various footprints made with both working boots and trainers near the stream where the suspicious man had been seen washing his hands and made casts of the prints. Red paint flecks were recovered from Alex's hair and the crime scene examiner had found what he thought were semen stains on Rachel's underwear. These stains were sent for DNA analysis but were found not to contain enough DNA for a positive profile, leaving the investigative team without any solid evidence to go on. Not only that, but their only witness to the crime was a three-year-old whose only concern at that stage was where their dog had disappeared to. It would be weeks before his father, Andre, managed to get Alex to describe the man who'd hurt his mummy. According to young Alex, it was a thin white man who wore blue pants and a white shirt and carried a red box with him. Alex's description matched the descriptions that had been provided by the other witnesses, and the police used this information to whittle down their list of suspects. Due to the public nature of the attack, the press took a keen interest in the case, and the now defunct newspaper, News of the World, <laughs> like in this case, they're the good guys offering up a reward, but the News of the World was such a like ethical train wreck that I'm glad they're not around anymore. They're the ones who were behind the phone hacking shit that went on 
It's like top-tier journalism there, guys. Well done. Uh, offered a £15,000 reward for any information that could lead to the arrest of the killer. As a result, the investigative team at the Wimbledon police station was flooded with information, and a team of almost 50 detectives and office staff were assigned to the case. From day one, the press were hot on the heels of the investigative team, trying to get as much information on their progress as possible, going so far as to stalk members of the investigative team and hound them for answers. How journalists f off. Like, sometimes it's like, yeah, okay. I get what you do, it's in the public interest for the most part, but this is some bullshit. Just leave them alone to do their job and stop being weird. Andre Rachel's partner appeared at a press conference asking the public to come forward with any information that they might have, saying, This person has to be found before someone else is killed and another family destroyed. But despite all the publicity, the investigative team still didn't have a lot to go on, and a month after Rachel's death, they still didn't have a suspect in mind. So, the Association of Chief Police Officers, the ACPO, suggested that they use the services of a profile, and once again, Paul Britton was called in to assist with the investigation. He would study the case file and provide the Rachel Nickel inquiry with the following profile. Their suspect would be between the ages of 20 to 30 and had probably been the victim of violence in his childhood. He would have poor relationship skills and will likely be unable to relate to women on an ordinary level. He likely suffers from some form of sexual dysfunction and would be attracted to pornography. He would be of average intelligence and education, and if he is employed, it would be a solitary job that doesn't require a lot of skills. He either lives with a parent or alone in a flat. His hobbies and interests will be of an unusual nature and might include martial arts, photography, and the occult. Okay. <laughs> it's like these deep pulls, man. These, <laughs> And you know maybe this will turn out to be true. It's like, yeah, what did the profiler come up with? Oh, he's into witchy, witchy He's into witches. Okay. How, what, what? He probably doesn't have access to a car and lives within walking distance of Wimbledon Common. There is a significant probability that is a history of sexual offending, which might include a previous conviction. He has practiced assaulting women before, but this would have been his first killing. Dude, there is so much about this that is just bang on. It's kind of nuts. In a postscript, Britain concluded that, In my view, it is almost inevitable that this person will kill another young woman at some point in the future as a result of the strong deviancy and aggressive fantasy urges. He went on to explain that there are thousands of socially inept, lonely, unattractive, and isolated men in the Greater London area. <laughs> He's like, Brah, there are loads of incels in London. <laughs> However, the profile he'd provided should narrow down the list of suspects, since the chances that two men who match his profile would be at Wimbledon Common at the same time on the same day was vanishingly small. But he would be proven wrong. On September 3, 1992, the murder of Rachel Nichol was featured on Crime Watch, and the investigative team was flooded with over 800 responses, three of which pointed to the same man, someone who not only matched the photo fit that had been issued to the local newspapers, but someone who had been at Wimbledon Common on the day that Rachel Nichol had been murdered. Furthermore, he matched Paul Britton's profile. His name was Colin Stagg, and soon all resources that had been made available to the Rachel Nichol inquiry were focused solely on him. So you remember that railroading that I predicted in the introduction today? I get the feeling that Colin Stagg is about to get railroaded the shit out of which is very sad and very problematic for him. Can you imagine being in that situation where it's like everyone thinks you're guilty of some horrific crime and you didn't do it? And it's like, oh, I'm screwed. And all the police are out to get you. They're telling you you're guilty. And it's like, I'm not guilty. And you're like, oh, please, courts, recognize that I'm not guilty. And still, it's like one of those things, you know, when you're like, oh, well, at least you got this out of it. And it's like, no, nothing good comes out of this. The best case scenario is that people realize you're innocent in the end. And I'm sure that's a big relief, but it's not like you end up with a net positive. It's just shitty. It's just bad. The whole situation is bad. 
the honey trap. You can't fully explain the mistakes that were made in Rachel Nichols' murder investigation without explaining the case that was built around Colin Stagg. Another woman, let's call her Janice, came forward and also pointed a finger at Colin Stagg. Janice had met him through a Lonely Hearts column, and the two of them had shared a few letters discussing their romantic pasts and their sexual interests. She confirmed that not only did the photo fit look like him, but he matched the criteria listed in the profile, including an interest in the occult, and she confessed that his interests in BDSM and knife play had freaked her out, prompting her to end the acquaintance. I don't want a king shape or whatever. It's like, so uh, what are you into sexually? Knife play. Oh my! If someone was like, if the, if that if that happened to me, I'd be like, oh, okay, okay then. <laughs> that's a, that's a new one. <laughs> knife play. Uh, this prompted her to end their acquaintance. You just come into the bedroom and he's got like that knife and he's doing that thing where he's like chopping it between his fingers, like. Pop, 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 pop. It's like, oh, hello. He's <laughs> just flicking around a butterfly knife. Okay. Colin was questioned by the police and admitted that they'd been at Wimbledon Common on the day that Rachel Nicholl had been murdered, but denying the allegation that it had anything to do with the murder. Paul Britton agreed with the Metropolitan Police that Colin was a good match for his profile, but they didn't have any physical evidence to link him to the case. So, with the help of Paul Britton, the police decided to set up a trap for Colin to get Colin to get him to confess to the murder of Rachel Nicholl. Um, oh, the d of course, because they haven't connected this to the other rapes that have gone on. So, and the semen at the scene of the murder was not usable for DNA. So I was thinking, why didn't they just DNA test him? But obviously they can't because they don't have a DNA sample. Um, they, they, can't link, they can't link him to the, the scene. And they couldn't anyway because he's not the guy, obviously. And that is how the now infamous Operation Edsel was born. In short, an undercover police officer from the Metropolitan Police Special Operations Group contacted Colin and introduced herself as Lizzie Jane, a friend of Janice's. Janice had allegedly told her all about Colin and his interests, and even though Janice had snubbed him, Lizzie was all for getting a little rough in the sheets. For the next five months, Lizzie would be in constant contact with Colin to get more information on him. They'd meet up for dates, talk on the phone, and send letters to each other filled with explicit descriptions of what they'd like to do to each other, which is the worst kind of catfishing, since Colin was spilling out his heart to a room full of stuffy police detectives. Yeah, this is not okay, guys. This is ethically crossing a line. According to Paul Britton, the plan was that, as their mutual trust seemed to grow, the officer would gradually disclose more of her history, which would include serious, violent sexual crime. This would help to create an environment where the suspect could feel safe and even boastful in revealing his background. This doesn't feel legal. What's that? I, I think this is a, it's like a thing from American movies, right? Where they're like, you, you you can't say if you're a cop like are you a police officer you can't lie i think they can lie but it's like this um like entrapment or whatever that like the police the police can't and this makes a lot of sense they can't get you to they can't trick you to do a crime they can't encourage you to do it and then arrest you for the crime that they encouraged you to do right so maybe this is legal but whether it's ethical eek Lizzie would start milking Colin about Rachel Nichols' murder, trying to get him to admit to killing Rachel. She'd hinted at sharing Colin's interest in the occult and admitted to how much the idea of sacrificing, torturing, and killing someone turned her on. During one of their conversations, Lizzie would tell Colin that if only you had done the Wimbledon Common murder, if only you had killed her, it would be all right. Well, that's one of those things. Colin, he's into knives and BDSM and all that stuff, which is fine. That's great. Good for you. And But then if someone was like, and if you murdered that person well one you could just be like yeah i murdered her right and even then it would be like why did you say that because I, I i wanted to get late <laughs> like this even then is not enough even if he confesses to it be like nah i just i just liked this uh what was her name lizzie woman 
I just liked her. And I just said that I did because I wanted to get married. What are you up to, police? You're wasting a lot of time here. Implicating that after months of refusing to have sex with him, she'd finally give in. According to Colin, he kept on reminding himself that Lizzie was a good-looking woman who was showing an interest in him, and even though he thought Lizzie wasn't all there, she was mentally unstable, he still wanted to have sex with her. Of course he did. After all, he was a 29-year-old virgin and desperate to get some and punch that B card, so he decided to keep on humoring his bloodthirsty girlfriend. But when she came up with her offer of, just admit to the murder and I'll sleep with you, Colin only said that, I'm terribly sorry, but I haven't thereby winning the worst peer pressure scenario that I've ever heard of. Good for you, Colin. Even if you said, yeah, it was me, that, that a lawyer would destroy that within about four seconds. Throughout all of this, the police hadn't gotten the information that they wanted, and nothing Colin said or did indicated that there was even the slightest possibility that he was responsible for killing Rachel. Still, the Metropolitan Police would arrest Colin Stagg on the 18th of August 1993 under suspicion of the murder of Rachel Nickel, and when he was confronted with Lizzie, Colin realized that he had become the fall guy for someone else's murder and shut down completely. When this case reached the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales, aka the old Bailey, Mr. Justice Henry Ognor reviewed the case and the evidence that had been brought forward from the police and threw it out. <laughs> yeah, rightly so. Come on now. He told the court that I would be the first to acknowledge the great pressure put on officers in the pursuit of this inquiry, but I'm afraid this behavior betrays not merely an excess of zeal, but a blatant attempt to incriminate a suspect by positive and deceptive conduct of the grossest kind. Okay, I'm glad I wasn't off base there. I'm gl uh, off base. I'm glad Mr. Justice agrees with me because. It did feel like, I, I get that they're out there trying to catch a horrific murderer who I'd love to see locked up or maybe hung. Hanged? Hanged. But, like, guys, you, you're the police. You've got to be ethically better than this. This is not okay. He described the investigation as being a sustained enterprise to manipulate the accused, sometimes subtly, sometimes blatantly, and designed by deception to maneuver and seduce him to reveal fantasies of an incriminating character and to wholly unsuccessfully admit to the offense. Colin Stagg would be acquitted and released in September 1994 after spending a total of 14 months in prison, but had already been found guilty by the British public and would spend the next 10 years living as a pariah. So, you police in this ruined a good chunk of this man's life, which is insane. I hope, like, UK, we're not a very litigious culture in general. It's not like in America where it's like, sue, baby, sue! But he should definitely be getting some money for this. And I know it's like police money, so it's taxpayer money and all of that shit. But you ruined his life. You ruined 10 years of his life. That's fed up. I hope he got paid. The Murders of Samantha and Jasmine Bisset I'm just going to go with Bisset because, I don't know, and if you look it up, it's not going to, it's going to be like, this is how you pronounce the surname Bisset in general, and you don't know whether it's the right version or not, so look, relax, it's fine. Robert Napper would lie low for a while after he'd murdered Rachel Nickel. He had attempted to attack a young woman on the 19th of August 1992 after he'd struck a conversation with her at a bus stop, but she'd become very wary of him during the course of that conversation. She'd tried to escape him by getting onto the first bus that approached them, but when Robert continued to follow her, she got off the bus and almost ran into Eltham Police Station, the very same police station that had investigated the Green Chain Rapist. She watched as he disappeared into the trees behind the Welcome Inn public house and then waited another few minutes before catching a bus home. Good for you. Very smart. Yeah. If you're ever in a situation like just in case, you know, why not get off the bus and wait for the next one? If they follow you off the bus, why not go into a public place? 
just sit down have a cut have a diet coke and then leave and go somewhere else later maybe tell the barman if you're very concerned maybe be like I'm not, I'm not sure about this but i think there's someone following me and uh look any dude in that position is going to be like all right you sit right there i'm going to look outside anyone is like that anyone like people are good people obviously the person you you're being followed by a potential rapist and i'm here to say people are good most people are good most people would help i think i like to think if i was in that situation i'd be like you sit right there <laughs> i'm not going to do anything myself but i'm going to look out the window menacingly and if there's a man out there i'm going to call someone like the police who could deal with him <laughs> She only realized that she'd come close to being another victim when she recognized his picture in a local newspaper two weeks later. She reported the incident to the Eltham police, but no one followed up on her report, and it would be months before anyone linked it to Robert Napper. Sometimes you just gotta feel like you're just left out by the police, don't you? It's like, that's really like, I don't know. You just gotta feel like, what you did? <laughs> police, come on. The only interaction I've had with the police here, well, I mean, other than like traffic offenses, <laughs> getting pulled over. <laughs> Hello. Uh, and then also someone oh someone crashed into my car the other week which was awesome i was driving oh, i wasn't driving my wife was driving driving along the road and so i was just like i'm just gonna pull into the road without looking and so like, oh great and so now my car's being repaired for two weeks fortunately their insurance pays for everything but hey, the police come sorry it's interactions with police someone stole um my wife's mobile phone she was in starbucks or whatever and they just come up and they pretend to be asking like some they they, they were some, like pretending to be a tourist and they're like i oh, do you know where this is and in the meantime they're just like nicking her phone and she like reported to the police it, just so she can get the, the the police case number to go and you know tell her insurance company again your phone or whatever but the police follow up and they're like can you come in to the police station and she's like okay <laughs> <laughs> sure so she goes into the police station they're like would you take part in like a lineup would you look at a selection of people and tell us which one it was and she's like he just stole a phone <laughs> they're like yeah but he's like part of this like um he's he's like stolen a bunch of phones your phone was like uh, i guess it was like a fancier phone or whatever so it slipped over the line from like petty theft to like a more criminal thing and the police are like yeah we think we can bust this guy for um this like chain of thefts and uh she's like sure so she goes in she does the light up she's like it's just number three <laughs> that's the dude and he goes to jail <laughs> i was like fucking hell so i was really quite impressed with the police and i've told the story before of the uh of the police and i've told this story before so i'll just say it really brief but my friend was at the shopping center his kid is going nuts and he's like okay look he's basically just dragging his screaming kid home he lives next to the shopping center and then the police show up at his door of his apartment and they're like i oh, we just saw uh, there was a man and uh, he was reported dragging a screaming kid into the into this building and we're knocking on doors and uh, we just wanted to make sure that everything's all right and he's like yeah dude it's my kid what are you talking about his wife's there and everything and they're like yeah no this is these these the dad this is his kids <laughs> and he, at first he was like this was really up like i was like hey this is my kid and then he was like oh no this is really good because what if it wasn't my kid and so someone had called the police on him and everything and i'm like and he was like this is great and look okay we're gonna move on because i'm becoming really aware that this is like oh look <laughs> white dude simon has great interactions with the police what a surprise <laughs> yeah all right so we're just gonna move on because obviously it's not all great interactions with the police is it guys i read the news especially out of america holy shit, america what are you up to 
Early in September, Robert Napper had fixated on one of the waitresses who worked at the Welcome Inn public house, but when the police appeared on his doorstep and started questioning regarding his whereabouts, his paranoia reached new levels, and he moved to a new flat, abandoning his new interest, who, for a few months at least, would remain blissfully unaware of the fact that for a short while, her every move had been carefully studied and noted on Robert's maps. But on the 3rd of November 1993, Robert Napper found himself hiding in a grove of silver birch trees. I like still silver birch trees. I think they're great. I, I'm, I'm moving to a new house soon, and we're like having the, it renovated and stuff, and landscaping done in the gardens. And I'm like, I'd like to put some silver birch trees in there because I think they look pretty. Wow, Simon, could you do more tangents today? Jesus. Oh, I think that's impossible. Staring into the ground for it wasn't even interesting. You're just talking about your love of silver birch trees. No one cares. Staring into the ground floor apartment where the 27-year-old Samantha Bisset and her four-year-old daughter Jasmine lived, based on the title of the section, you already know that he murdered them. He murdered a four-year-old. That's some Pedro Lopez. You. But when Rachel Nichols' murder had gained international sympathy and interest, the double murder of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett was barely mentioned in the media, and even the documentaries that I watched barely touched on Samantha and Jasmine were turning them into a footnote in the story of how Robert Napper was finally brought to justice. Samantha Bissett was born in Dundee, Scotland on the 25th of February 1967. She loved painting. This was an interest she shared with her father, but when she was 14, her father passed away, and she lost all interest in pursuing art and turned into a rebellious teenager instead, dropping out of school and becoming addicted to drugs in the process. Let me just tell you, uh, as a British person, <laughs> like what I think is about to go on. Look, she is from a poor background. She lives in a bad part of town. She has a rough upbringing. She's addicted to drugs. All of this stuff. And the other woman was a model who lived in Wimbledon. And if you don't, Wimbledon's a very nice part of London. She's She's got money. Uh, you know, come on. This, uh, this is my prediction of why the media paid less attention. Because, you know, media's kind of a piece of shit, So... Around the age of 17, she left home and joined a thriving community of hippies, embracing their bohemian lifestyle to the full. They travelled all over England in old buses and attended various music festivals, and for the most part, she found this lifestyle to be idyllic. When she was 21, her drug dependency had become a problem, and she went to a rehabilitation centre in Salisbury to get clean and get her life back on track. While she was there, she started a relationship with a social worker, and the two of them moved to London to start a new life together. They broke up soon after, and then Samantha realized that she was pregnant. Her ex didn't feel that he could support her and her child financially, so he abandoned them. Father of the year there. And the 22-year-old Samantha was forced to take stock of her life and decide what she wanted to do, and that was to provide her child with every advantage in life that she could. She moved to her home for single mothers, and soon after, she met Conrad Allen, a man who'd become her boyfriend and help her raise Jasmine. Samantha had managed to get her and Jasmine a flat, and they moved out of the home and into apartment 1A Heathfield Terrace in Plumstead. Samantha was devoted to her daughter, and her ambition drove her to find a way for the two of them to live better lives. She'd researched private schools in the area and soon realized that she wouldn't be able to afford to send Jasmine there. Yeah, private schools. Very expensive. So, Samantha started placing personal ads, essentially becoming an escort to provide a better future for her daughter. Her neighbors soon noticed how men would arrive at her apartment all hours of the day, but she was a good neighbor and devoted mother, so they let her be. In October 1993, Samantha had finally managed to get Jasmine a spot in a private school in Sussex and had hoped to find work as an assistant at the school so she could not only earn a better living but be close to Jasmine as well, hopefully bringing them one step closer to the life that she believed Jasmine deserved. Of course, all her plans would turn to dust the moment Robert Napper placed a hand on the railing of her balcony and let himself into their apartment through her terrace windows. 
At 7 a.m. on the morning of the 4th of November 1993, Conrad Ellum clocked off after working the night shift at a plastic factory, and he made his way to Samantha and Jasmine's apartment. Unlike the rest of the apartments at Heathfield Terrace, apartment 1A had its own entrance, and he descended a short flight of stairs to the front door. He tried unlocking the door, but soon realized that even though it was unlocked, the deadbolt had been thrown. He called for Samantha, but when she didn't answer, he peeked through the letter slot in the door. He couldn't see Samantha or Jasmine, but he noticed that clothes had been strewn down the short hallway. He ended up using his deadbolt key to let himself into the apartment, and he made his way towards the kitchen, barely glancing into the bedroom on his left. He noticed a dark stain on the carpet in the hallway, and still wondering at it, found that the kitchen also had piles of clothes strewn all over the place. The cupboard where Samantha stored her extra clothes was open and empty, and Conrad headed towards the living room. There he found Samantha's body had been hidden underneath a pile of clothes. He rushed back to the kitchen and called the police, and it was only after he got off the phone that he realized that he still didn't know where Jasmine was. He found her on Samantha's bed, her lifeless body covered by a duvet and partially hidden by her collection of soft toys. Sick to his stomach, Conrad left the apartment and sat down on the front steps, smoking one cigarette after another as he waited for the police to arrive, trying to process the fact that he'd just lost his entire family. The Bisset Inquiry Detective Superintendent Mickey Banks would lead the investigation into the murders of Samantha and Jasmine, and he described the police that he walked in once the police started their investigation as such. I walked through to the living room, and this body was displayed. I mean, it was the most horrendous scene I've ever seen in 32 years of police service. It was awful. You know, it was as if a post-mortem had been conducted on the poor girl. It was absolutely horrendous. Their initial thought was that Samantha had been murdered as part of a domestic dispute. Conrad's hands had been stained red from the dye used at the factory, but the police thought that it might be blood, so he was placed under arrest soon after the police arrived at the scene. DS Banks called together a team of four investigators to help on the case, and they all gathered at the Thamesmead police station mere hours after Conrad had reported the murders to the police, compiling a to-do list of everything that had to be done in order to solve Samantha and Jasmine's murders. Apartment 1A was fully processed. Fingerprints were lifted, bodies photographed, taken to a mortuary, and the police started questioning Samantha's neighbors, trying to find witnesses to the crime. They had heard Samantha washing dishes at around 11 p.m., and a neighbor residing on the opposite side of the green heard screams at around 3 a.m. She noticed that the lights were on at 1A Heathfield Terrace, but almost as soon as the screams started, they stopped, and she went back to bed. Another neighbor told the police that she'd heard screams followed by two men arguing in Jasmine's flat, with one man telling the other to leave it be before it became quiet again. Conrad was released from police custody the next morning, and the police started tracing every person that Samantha had been in contact with in the weeks leading up to her death. Conrad told the police that Samantha had been convinced that someone had been watching her through the living room window days before her murder, but he hadn't thought much of it at the time. Now, of course, he regretted not taking her claims more seriously and he refused to return to the apartment. Then the forensics report came in. They confirmed that Samantha had been murdered in the hallway right outside the bedroom door. Her attacker had stabbed her a total of eight times, killing Samantha before turning on her daughter, who'd been asleep in her cot and must have woken up from the noise. Jasmine had been raped and then suffocated before her body was covered up with a duvet. Samantha's body was then dragged to the living room where the attacker had closed the blinds over the windows and proceeded to cut away at Samantha's body. Wait, he raped her, kid? F*** you, man. What the f***? Once the attacker was done, he washed his hands in the small bathroom, leaving droplets of blood everywhere. And at one point, he stepped in a pool of Samantha's blood, tracking footprints all over the apartment. The prints belonged to either a size 7 or a size 9, added as Phantom Low-Rise Trainer, and 
confirmed that their perpetrator was male. The police also made multiple appeals to the public for more information, but no useful information came forward. The only foreign DNA that could be found in the apartment belonged to Conrad, and the sets of fingerprints that were found all over the apartment were matched to friends and neighbors of Samantha and Jasmine. No foreign prints were found. One of the forensic team members, Detective Sergeant Lionel Barkley, approached D.S. Banks and told him that he suspected that the Rachel Nichol murder and the Bassey murders may have been committed by the same person. He explained that it had been part of the forensic team on the Nichol case, and the similarities between the two cases were obvious. Both victims were young mothers who were blonde and attractive with young children, and both of them had been viciously stabbed to death. D.S. Banks agreed, and he arranged to meet up with the team who were investigating Rachel Nichols' murder. Of course, they were already months into their investigation, and they assured D.S. Banks that it was unlikely that the murders had been committed by the same person, since they already had a suspect. But the lead investigator did suggest that perhaps D.S. Banks would like to call in the assistance of a criminal profiler. They had called on one, and so far his help had proved to be invaluable. So Paul Britton turned up at yet another investigation and was looking into one of Robert Napper's crimes, and once again he was given access to the case files. Once he saw what Robert had done to Samantha's body, he repeatedly realized that they weren't dealing with an ordinary murder and was more than happy to provide the Bazette inquiry with a profile for their suspect. He would be between 20 and 30 years old, probably violent childhood, feels undervalued. He isn't a satist, but interacting with his victim's body provides him with some sort of satisfaction. He is of average intelligence and has the ability to hold down a low-skilled job. He has some kind of psychological condition which keeps him from building relationships with others. He doesn't want to be famous. In fact, he'd prefer to be invisible. He will have a history of offenses against women. He is a watcher and a stalker, and has an overwhelming urge to attack women. And although some of his other attacks might be minor, he would, in all probability, kill again. All of this only confirmed what D.S. Banks already knew, that they were dealing with a sick bastard. So, unlike the investigative team working on Rachel Nichols's murder, D.S. Banks simply shelved Paul Britton's profile and decided to focus on the facts instead. Connecting the Dots According to D.I. Jackman, quote, Lack of press coverage is a two-edged sword. The press can be intrusive and slow the investigation, even to the extent of developing their own, sometimes half-baked theories, the plus side being that with press interest, the case is given oxygen. Yeah, and you've got a lot of people like thinking about have they seen this dude who did that or did this, which is good. But as we saw previously, it's also like <laughs> when the press were like hounding the investigators, it's like, f*** off press, leave them alone. A month after the murders, the Bisson Inquiry was already suffering from a lack of oxygen and the case was slowly dying out. All the available leads had been followed, all of the possible suspects had been eliminated, and all of the forensics had come back clear. Despite the horrific nature of the Bisset murders, Samantha had been labelled as a woman of easy virtue, and the media had lost interest in the case the very day after the murders had taken place. Desperate for answers. D.S. Banks contacted the BBC and applied for the case to be featured on Crime Watch. Allegedly, the BBC wasn't interested in the case at first, but when D.S. Banks mentioned that Paul Britton had been involved in the case and was willing to appear on the show, their interest was piqued, and the Beset Murders episode was scheduled to air on the 8th of February 1994. But alas, despite hundreds of calls coming in directly following the episode, none of the leads proved valuable. One caller even went so far as to say that they'd seen the murderer just that afternoon and was more than happy to provide the police with his description and home address. It turned out to be the actor that portrayed the murderer in the Crime Watch episode. You cannot be serious. <laughs> this person is so dim. Oh my lord. I've seen, like, Crime Watch is like, they're very clear. It's like, the following is a reenactment. Or, you know, it's like, I vaguely remember this show from like, I used to watch this at my nan's as a kid. God knows why my nan let me watch Crime Watch, actually. It was terrifying. 
Anyway, they, they are super clear about it being an actor, because <laughs> otherwise that dude's going to have a miserable week. But alas, despite hundreds of... <laughs> he's just like buying some cigarettes in the shop and someone tackles him to the ground being like, Citizen's arrest! Call the police! I've got him! It's like, I'm an actor! The saying goes that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Whether Einstein said it first or not is up for debate, but in May 1994, DS Banks proved it wrong when they finally had a breakthrough in the case. He was studying the forensic reports for the umpteenth time and allegedly wondered how it was that every set of fingerprints had been positively identified, something that was unheard of in any investigation. So, he called the head of the fingerprints branch back and had them rerun the fingerprints. Oh no, oh no, did they run the same prints twice? And then be like, done. And then just leaving these other prints, which are the killers. Oh no, don't say, say it ain't so. On the 20th of May 1994, news spread that one set of fingerprints had been misidentified. It was almost identical to Samantha's and as a result had been wrongly identified as belonging to her. Oh, okay, that, that's more forgivable. <laughs> the fingerprints had been found on the rail of the balcony, the door jammed to the bedroom, and Jasmine's cot. And now the investigation was focused on finding who the fingerprints belonged to. The head of the fingerprints branch allegedly hailed the discovery as another great day for the fingerprint branch, <laughs> but DS Banks allegedly shouted at the head of the fingerprint branch that no, it isn't a triumph, it's a bloody disgrace. <laughs> I assume this didn't really happen, but it is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> come on guys come on guys the fingerprints were run against the national criminal index and finally they had a suspect robert napper you see on the 2nd of december 1992 robert napper had walked into a printing shop and ordered 50 a4 size letterheads with the metropolitan police logo and crest on them with the words greenwich division printed underneath them what the f man you go to a print shop and doing this can you imagine being a print shop owner and be like, what's this for? He'd be like, uh, I am making a play. I am doing a play. I am an actor. Be like, okay, I'm just going to need uh, just write your phone number and address down here so we can uh, send you a bill. <laughs> then immediately call the police because that is sketchy as f if you went in a print shop, if work in a print shop and someone, someone's up to that, they're committing crimes. Like, is it maybe, maybe they're making it for a TV show. They're probably not. So, uh, unless you're like, I don't know, living like Hollywood or something. Um, just just call police and be like, you guys got any interest in this? Bit of a weird thing happened. Like, phone that non-emergency police number, which I don't remember. What is that in England? Oh, there's a, like, there's like a, there's an emergency, like 999, and then there's, if you're not in an emergency, you can try this one. I've totally forgotten what it's called. The owner of the print shop quite rightly thought that this request was suspicious. So he contacted the police soon after Robert left the shop. Excellent! Officers from the Plumstead station arrived soon after and waited for Robert to come and collect his order. He ran as soon as he saw that. Wait, they're not in plain clothes? They're not in plain clothes? What are you up to? You're, you're, you're running like an operation where you're going to capture him and you show up in uniform? What the f***? But he was captured and arrested under suspicion of impersonating a police officer. Okay, cool. Uh, at least they captured him. <laughs> Why he just ran? Why not just be like, look across the, from across the street? Everyone's a clown. A search warrant was issued for his flat. The police found a 22 caliber Irma pistol together with 200 rounds of ammunition, a crossbow, several knives, a listening device, and an A to Z stream map of London that had various hand-drawn markings and routes drawn on it. Robin Apple was charged with possession of a firearm and ammunition without a license and spent 25 days in jail, ensuring that his fingerprints would be forever a part of the National Crime Index. Yes, and hopefully his DNA, and then they can run that. Are we doing that yet? I know it's the 90s, but come on, let's go. The original team was called back, and now the set inquiry focused on finding out exactly who Robert Napper was. 
D.I. Jackerman called the collator at the Plumstead police station to request more information on Robert Napper. He drove over to the station and returned within the hour with Robert Napper's record with the Plumstead police as well as a photo of him. The photo was pinned up against the board, and Pam Robinson, one of the indexers who'd worked in the Thamesmead police office, allegedly walked up to it and said, That's the green chain rapist. I know, it seems a little bit too easy, but we weren't there. D.I. Jackman was. So we'll just go with it. Yeah, totally fine. These coincidences happen. They're all working these cases and shit. Now, also, people have a wild... This, I'm gonna butcher whatever study it was, but there was something, like, that showed just how good humans are at remembering whether we've seen faces before. Like, there was some insane thing where it's like, people were shown, like, 5,000 faces or something. And then, like, a week later, they were shown 10 faces and be like, did you see this face? Did you see this face? And they got it right, like, 80% of the time or something nuts just because we're amazing at remembering faces which I don't know I am shit at this <laughs> I think sometimes I'm wondering like I'll be someone and be like oh, I know you from someone but I don't know where <laughs> I know you're familiar but and it's always a bit embarrassing because I really try and make an effort but uh I think I have that 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 disease where you can't remember people's faces properly because it's like shit, dude and then don't even get me started on names Jesus Allegedly, Pam retrieved the wanted poster from the wall of the office and pinned it up next to Robert Napper's photo. And yes, eventually most of the team came to agree that he bore a resemblance to the sketch. Despite his height, he had short mousy hair and a spotty complexion and had been wearing the same style of clothes when he'd been arrested. The criminal records office was contacted and all the information that they had on Robert Napper was requested. DS Banks arranged to meet the two lead detectives in charge of the investigation into the now-closed Green Chain Rapist case. He explained their reasons for suspecting that Robert Napper had only been responsible for murdering Samantha and Jasmine Bassett, but he might be the green chain rapist as well. The two investigators admitted that Robert Napper had once been a suspect. DS Banks was shocked to learn that Robert Napper had been eliminated to suspect simply based on his height. Yeah, he didn't show up for those DNA tests. They're like, oh, it's not here. He's too short. That's fine. Um, turns out that's not fine. <laughs> you should have, uh, uh, what's that word when you demand someone subpoenaed? When you say you've got to give me the DNA, Sit in that chair. I'm drawing some blood. Let's go. Especially since he refused to come in and supply them with a blood sample, uh, which was already suspicious. Yeah. The investigation into the Green Chain Rapist case was reopened, and together the two investigative teams worked to find out more about Robert Napper. A surveillance team had been tasked with keeping an eye on Robert, and his criminal past was slowly pieced together by Detective Inspector Roger Boydell Smith, who went through every unsolved case reported in the area to find out whether more of them could be linked to Robert. And they found plenty. The A to Z guide that had been recovered from Robert's apartment in December 1992 was handed over to Detective Constable Christine Smith, who would draw up A3 maps of the marked areas. Every site where a green chain rapist victim had been attacked had been marked off, and soon DC Smith realized that Robert Napper had marked places that were important to his crimes. <laughs> you fucking clown. In total, there were 80 places of interest. <laughs> ah. How was he described earlier as average intelligence? If this guy's got an IQ of 100, I'd be surprised. Come on, mate. This is some dim-ass shit. Some of them marked his crimes, others seemed to be secluded areas from where he could easily watch his victims, and others belonged to the houses that he'd stalked for some time. On the 19th of February 1993, two boys had come across a large biscuit tin that had been found buried underneath some bushes. Inside, carefully wrapped in cloth, was a Mauser 22 handgun. 
The police were called, and the police firearms laboratory tested it for fingerprints and possible links to open cases. They couldn't match either. D.I. Bordel Spith linked one of the unsolved cases to the location where the boys had found the gun, the one where a woman was shot at through her living room window. He sent the bullet to forensics, and they came back a match to the Mauser. He also sent the fingerprints that had been on the inside of the biscuit tin off for identification. They came back as a match for Robert Napper. On the 31st of August, 1993, Robert Napper had also been noted as a person of interest after a man had seen him climbing the wall of a neighbor's yard and called the police. For a guy who's had so many close brushes with the police, it's kind of like, how, how can we, come on. Once the police arrived, they found Robert hiding nearby in an alleyway. When he was questioned, the police officers noted that he was acting odd. Yeah, he's hiding in an alleyway. What are you doing over there? Nothing. Hiding. You're an adult man. This isn't a hide and seek. Uh, and the police officer who made a note of the incident found him disturbing enough to submit a lengthy report describing Robert as quiet and withdrawn but possibly capable of extreme violence. He also noted that Napa should be considered for any future rape or indecency offences. Oh my god. Can you imagine you make such a bad first impression? It's like they come across you hiding in an alleyway. And the police, they end up being like, yeah, that guy's a, he's going to be a rapist. He's a rapist. And if he's not, he will be. Keep an eye. For all future rape cases, think about Robert. Dude needs to read a book about making a good first impression. D.I. Boydor Smith also linked Robert to the woman who'd been reported stalked by him in Eltham and would later link him to the theft of a handbag that belonged to the waitress in the Welcome in Public House that he'd stalked back in September 1993. Her house was also marked off in his A to Z guide. On the 24th of May 1994, the surveillance team reported that Robert had suddenly changed his habits. Where he usually left for work at 7am, returned at 9pm and then didn't leave his flat until the next morning. Boy, that's a long-ass workday. What did this guy do again? Wasn't he just like working some menial job? But that evening had left his flat and went for a brisk walk, dressed in a dark hoodie, a baseball cap, and carrying a black Jaguar sports bag. The team didn't want to take the risk of him attacking someone while they were building a case against him, so the decision was made to arrest him the very next day, just four days after he was identified as a possible suspect. The Arrest and Trial of Robert Napper at 6.30 a.m. on the 24th of May 1994, the arrest team was patiently waiting outside Robert Napper's apartment building. But just like the day before, he changed his habits, and he didn't leave for work at 7 a.m. What they didn't know at the time was Robert had been fired the day before, and as a result, he was still asleep in bed, while the entire block around his apartment was crawling with police. <laughs> so he looks out the window. Ah, oh, I should have gone to police. At 8am, the decision was made to confront him inside the apartment, and D.I. Jackman simply walked up to his door and knocked. He was disappointed when a half-naked, wide-eyed Robert Napper opened the door and simply stared at them, looking nothing like the monster that they'd been hunting for months. Police, just do as you're told. D.I. Pete Garrickon stepped into the apartment, and Robert Napper stood quietly aside, allowing another officer to handcuff him and read him his rights. He was allowed to dress before he was taken away, and before he got into the police van, he turned to D.I. Jackman and simply said, I heard of the murders in the paper. I don't know, Samantha Bassett. I never have been where you said. D.I. Jackman made a note of this, and he would later have Robert Napper sign next to the note to show that he agreed with its contents. Oh, he's done himself in, hasn't he? There's going to be something in there that wasn't released to the public. I heard of the murders in the paper. Maybe they weren't in the paper yet. Maybe Samantha Bassett's name wasn't in the papers. Uh, maybe he was where he li he's lying because they have evidence of him being somewhere where when he says he wasn't. Something like that, right? 
Since the only thing that linked Robert Napper to the Bzet murders at this point was his fingerprints, it just sealed his fate, and that one comment might prove vital in the case against him. What are you doing signing that thing? Police Miller. Okay, can I just write that down and have you sign that you definitely said that? What the f man? Say no! The policeman's not like, because I'm looking to defend you. He obviously thinks it's going to be valuable somehow. What are you up to, you small-brained clown? But good, because you're going to go to f prison forever. A sample of Robert's blood would be sent off for analysis, and his DNA would be found to be a match to the DNA profile of the Green Chain Rapist. Three out of his four victims would positively identify him as the attacker, and police would find proof that he'd purchased a pair of size 9 Adidas Phantom Low training shoes on the 12th of January 1993. The shoes themselves, though, were never recovered. Another A to Z guide to London was found, together with a stack of hand-drawn maps and Robert's diary. Though, don't tell me he's been writing his crimes down in the diary. That would be just like icing on the cake today for this clown. They would be handed over to DC Smith for further analysis, and the markings on them would be added to the other maps that detailed Robert's crimes. They also found photocopies from a book called The Dragon's Touch in his flat. In essence, it's a book on defending yourself using a form of kung fu by targeting the body's major target zones and pressure points using only your hands. It contains photos of how to perform these moves with illustrations indicating where the pressure points are. Robert had instead taken it as a guide on how to incapacitate his victims, but it doesn't seem like it worked for him since he ended up using a blade instead of his hands. Yeah, pressure points, that's bullshit, right? That's not actually a... Obviously, there are parts of our body that are more sensitive, um, but like pressure points and stuff, that's... Is that really a thing? I thought that was bullshit. The police also found receipts for various hunting knives and a red toolbox where he kept them. There was a homemade warning sign on the toolbox, and when the police pulled it back, they found a shoe print on it for a size 9 Adidas trainer that matched the prints that had been found in Samantha and Jasmine's flat. Robert Napper was now thoroughly caught, and five different psychologists would evaluate him to determine whether he was fit to stand trial. Well, if he's not fit to stand trial, send him off to Broadmoor forever. During his interviews, Robert Napper would tell the same stories over and over, explaining that the British government had initiated a plot that resulted in the years... 1973, 1975, 1977, 1979, and 1980 being twice as long as they should have been. Okay. Uh, this feels like, are you, I know, you, I know you've got troubles, but are you that crazy? Because this sounds like you're trying to play up your craziness. Someone should have just told him this was a result of the time spinners going all wonky again and resulting in the time monks having to reassemble them, but he probably wouldn't have believed them anyway. He also believed that he met Queen Elizabeth while working as a kitchen assistant that she'd complained about a charity function that hadn't gone to plan. He also believed that he had been awarded with a Nobel Peace Prize and had his kneecaps busted in by the IRA, who had it in for his family. He had been poisoned on several occasions, and people generally talked to him behind his back since they knew he was the green chain rapist. Dr. Joseph found that Robert Napper was delusional and often tried to normalize or conceal his delusions. He claimed not to know why he had been arrested and refused to open up whenever his crimes were discussed with him, but other psychologists noted he was more than capable of disguising his delusions to appear normal, and that he was capable of choosing a certain way to act in front of the psychologists, making him fit to stand trial. Excellent. He's just playing up his, his craziness, in my opinion. On the 3rd of October 1995, Robert Napper pled guilty to manslaughter due to diminished responsibility as per the Mental Health Act of 1957. This meant that no trial was to be held and the team working on the Beset Inquiry wouldn't have to defend their case in court. On the 9th of October 1995, Robert Napper pled guilty on two accounts of attempted rape and one account of rape. He also pled guilty to manslaughter concerning the murders of Samantha and Jasmine Beset. Um, how about we just 
Oh, this is, I mean... <sighs> I feel like this guy is playing up the, the crazy to get it reduced to manslaughter when this just feels like murder. I feel like diminished responsibility is like... I don't know, I can't remember the exact definition. But it would be like, he thought they were demons and he was killing them. Then it would be manslaughter, but he murdered them and he knew what was up. He murdered them, in my opinion. He was sentenced with a restriction order per sections 37 to 41 of the Mental Health Act and was to be detained in Broadmoor Hospital for the remainder of his life. Excellent. Um, yeah, so this is like where it's like, okay, so he's never getting out. Like, that's the problem. Like, we mentioned this before in like UK law, pleading insanity or whatever is risky because if they detain you under the Mental Health Act, you could never get out. Like, you could never leave, which is pretty intense. It was Napper what done it. According to D.I. Jackman, the old Bassett inquiry team was obsessed with the idea that Robert Napper was responsible for Rachel Nichols' murder, leading to other investigators jokingly telling them it was Napper what done it whenever they turned their focus on an unlikely suspect. But it soon turned out that they weren't the only ones who thought it likely that had been involved in her murder. On the 20th of December 1995, two police detectives visited Robert Napper at Broadmoor Hospital, asking him whether or not it had anything to do with the murder of Rachel Nichols back in 1992. Robert Napper denied any involvement in her murder, claiming that it had been at work at the Plumstead at the time. The company he had been working for had been closed in September 1992 and the work records had been destroyed. As such, his old colleagues and manager couldn't confirm whether he had been at work or not, and with no concrete evidence to link him to Rachel Nichols' murder, the second investigation into her murder was brought to a close. But Rachel Nichols' family didn't forget about her, and they ensured that the public was constantly reminded that her killer hadn't been found. In January 2002, the Metropolitan Police would reopen her case, and the DNA samples that had been taken for Rachel Nichols' body would be run once more. Yeah, these were ones that were unviable, right? But surely technology improves and stuff that we could re revisit that. But forensics reported that the samples that had been taken shortly after her murder didn't return any positive results, not even a profile of Rachel's own DNA. Okay, never mind. But in July 2004, the Metropolitan Police would approach LGC Forensics, a private forensics company, to run a new set of tests on Rachel's clothes. And this time, a small sample of DNA was found. Amazing. This is so cool. DNA is everywhere. F*** you criminals. This DNA is going to get you, the DNA was run against the United Kingdom's National DNA Database, which had been established in 1995. From its inception, it was compulsory for convicted criminals and people awaiting trial to provide samples of their DNA. And by 2005, the database would contain 3.1 million DNA samples. People awaiting trial to provide samples of their DNA? <laughs> in a way, I think that could f*** off, to be honest. It's like innocent until proven guilty. And I, I don't know, I don't think I'd really mind giving my DNA, and I've definitely had my fingerprints taken. Um, do they take it on which? I think America takes your fingerprints or like a thumbprint, but they're not the only country that, that do that when you arrive. Does the UK do that? I have a feeling they might, but obviously, you know, I don't have to being a citizen and everything. That's interesting because I don't know. I, I I feel like with DNA, it feels so much. It's it's stupid because I'm like, I'll get my fingerprints, whatever. But like DNA, I'll be like, I don't know about that. You can like learn. It's like DNA is like everything about you, like every little thing they can know, which I find like really intense. I mean, I happily gave it to like Ancestry DNA or whatever, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But I don't know. It feels a bit weird. And like before you've even gone to trial and stuff, I don't know. Or whatever, f criminals, I'll do it. <laughs> 
Since Robert Napper was now a convicted criminal, his DNA profile had been added to the database, and LGC Forensics finally linked him to Rachel Nichols' murder. The case was reopened, and the Metropolitan Police scrambled to find any evidence that could concretely prove that Robert Napper had been responsible for a murder. The new team of investigators went to speak to Robert's old colleagues, and his supervisor mentioned that he used to keep a year planner in which he'd recorded the employees' working hours. He found it buried in a box in his loft and showed that on the date this is like decade a decade later over a decade later this guy's like god bless the hoarders man the shoes that had been left in robert's flat on the day of his arrest were taken out of storage and were compared to the casts of the footprints that had been made on the day rachel was murdered one of robert's shoes was found to be a match additionally the reflects of red paint that had been taken from alex's hair were sent to lgc in order to be compared to robert's toolbox and they too would be found to be a match in december 2007 robert napper would finally be charged with the murder of rachel nickel and on the 18th of december 2008 he would plead guilty to the charge of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and would once again be sentenced to spend the rest of his life in broadmoor hospital Finally, Rachel Nichols' family had some closure. Secure in the lodge, the man who was responsible for her death was behind bars, and the independent police authority would investigate the actions of the Metropolitan Police Service. And on the 3rd of June 2010, they'd find the following errors had led to the deaths of Rachel Nichols, Samantha, and Jasmine Bissett. A failure to investigate the report by Napa's mother of her son's admission to the rape in Purrett Road in 1989, as well as Napa being inconceivably eliminated from inquiries into the Green Chain Walk series of rapes because he was over six feet tall. Yeah, these were two huge errors, guys. No disciplinary actions were taken since most of the officers had already retired or passed away by the time the investigation was conducted, but according to D.I. Jackman, quote, No detectives set out to purposefully undermine an inquiry, but unfortunately, because of the very nature of the work, poor decisions can produce catastrophic results. This is the thing. Look, I get it. People make mistakes. People make mistakes all the time. And there are very few jobs. Like, if I make a mistake... <laughs> Someone will be angry in the comments be like, Oh, Simon, you said this rock. Simon, it's actually like that. Simon, you fell for this common factual inaccuracy. And it's like, okay, I get it. This is bad. I'm sorry. I don't intend to make mistakes. But it doesn't matter, really. But with police, big job lab, doctors, uh, lawyers, this kind of stuff, it's like there's more on the line. And it's bad. It can really have big problems. The quote continues, Looking back from the safety of an armchair, it is easy to criticize until one has worked in the cauldron of conflicting demands with added time constraints. One should not, perhaps, be quick to judge. I agree. I agree. There are obviously factors that we can't understand. What I don't agree with there is, yo, if someone's mum comes into a police station and says, my son raped someone, how about you look into the son? I don't, I don't think that that is... I would say that is in my opinion grossly negligent i think the rest of the staff like him being ruled out because he's over six foot short that's just a regular policing mistake not going to see the, the not the, the the mother thing i don't think that's okay but as we know actions do speak louder than words and we have covered multiple cases that indicate that perhaps sometimes the police are either corrupt or just bad at their jobs but it is good to note that once in a while a team comes along that are dedicated to doing their jobs and the investigative team who formed a part of the beset inquiry were definitely some of the good ones yeah i love how there's like ah there was one big mistake by the police couple of one giant mistake couple of big mistakes but then also nice to see super competent police work as well which is always nice Dismembered appendices. 
Number one, the initial investigation into Rachel Nichols' murder cost the Crown three million pounds, not including the twenty-two thousand pounds in compensation money that was paid out to Alex Hanscombe after he'd witnessed his mum's murder. Number two, Andre and Alex moved to France in 1996 to get away from the craziness surrounding the investigation into Rachel's murder. Andre also wrote a memoir called The Last Thursday in July, in which he explains the challenges that he and Alex faced as they tried to move on with their lives. Number three, Samantha's mother, Margaret Becerra, troubles processing her daughter and granddaughter's deaths and passed away from a heart attack two days before Robert Napper pled guilty to the murder of Samantha and Jasmine. Number four, the Metropolitan Police were ordered to publicly apologize to Colin Stagg and, uh, following the sentences of Robert Napper in 2008. Still, he sued the Metropolitan Police for damages, here we go, and was awarded £700,000 in compensation. Yes. Despite his status as a pariah, he soon got married after his acquittal, meaning that he finally punched that V-card. Yeah, Colin, this was... That's a... The police did you f***ing dirty, mate. I'm glad you got that £700,000, and it sounds like your life turned out really nice. So, uh, good for you. And uh, that f***ing sucks. Other than the seven hundred grand, that's pretty nice. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's not worth it, but at least you got something. Number five, Lizzie James, the undercover cop, also laid a claim against the Metropolitan Police, claiming that Operation Edsel ruined her career. She was awarded £125,000 in compensation. Um, what? Uh, were you ordered to do this? And you can't... If an order is unethical... Look, hold on. The woman who honey-trapped the guy who got the compensation... I, I guess I don't know the in off its politics of the police force at the time but if you're so she must have been ordered to do this can you order someone in the police force it's not the military you can tell them to do their job but surely there's an ethics review panel or someone more senior you can appeal to if you're not comfortable doing it i i i don't know about that i mean i don't i don't know about that there's not enough information to base anything on it just seems prima facie that's a bit much Number six, Paul Britton was discredited as an advisor to the Metropolitan Police since it failed to see the similarities between the three cases and received a lot of criticism for his role in the three investigations into Robert Napper's crimes. That's a bit... What? I feel like we're giving Paul Britton a bit of a hard time, to be honest. Like, he's a criminal profiler. He comes in and he... Look, it would be like, okay, many... So someone comes in and he's like, profile this criminal. Profile this other criminal. Profile this criminal. And he doesn't notice. And he does a good job. Like, it was accurate. It was a good profile. Is it really his job to be like it was like this guy I did last year that doesn't seem like his job he comes in he profiles someone and then he leaves i don't as i feel like paul britain's been done a bit dirty in this episode and we're all like oh paul britain what a clown i'm like but he just seemed that he did his job he failed to see the similarities between the three cases and received a lot of criticism for his role in the three investigations into robert napper's crimes he was also charged with professional misconduct by the british psychological society but the charge was dismissed in 2002 due to a delay in bringing proceedings throughout his book however di jackman points out on more than one occasion that technically paul britain's various assessments of robert napper's character weren't wrong he was just one of many who failed to see what was right under his nose the whole time this is totally unreasonable on paul britain is anyone this is the end of the episode is anyone else with me on that maybe there's more like there's more details that haven't made it into this episode about what he did wrong or maybe i just like glossed over something too quickly in my reading but it seems he was a criminal profiler he criminally profiled someone quite accurately and he just didn't connect it to someone else they'd criminally profiled before what the f <laughs> this seems so unreasonable that's where we're ending today's episode thank you for watching or listening if you get it as a podcast make sure you're subscribed leave those reviews i love it and i'll see you next time 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.